I know what you're thinking. Brother Dan, you have endured a good deal of abuse. All the way, not just today by the way, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, a good deal of abuse yesterday as well. From your younger brother Mark, you're right. But I don't mind, that's okay. I'm, I'm learning an injunction, you understand. We're in First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm just seeking to practice what I preach. Because Paul is going to say in First Thessalonians 5, be sober. Which of course has the thought of self-control. So that's what I've been doing all the way through these sessions. I have been mightily self-controlled as Mark has abused me from pillar to post. I am not responding in any way, shape or form. And of course he reminded you, didn't he, yesterday that he is the younger brother, I am the older brother. So I feel like I should be setting an example. I think this watch is the wrong way up, by the way, which is going to cause terrible trouble. I should be setting an example. So that's what I'm doing. I am being sober. Alright? I should just say this. Yesterday a dear brother came up to me and uh, he shall remain nameless. He said, I, he said I, I'm pretty sure that Brother Mark said from the platform that he was younger than you. I said, that's right. He said, he doesn't look it. <laughs> I, I reckon you've got ten years on him. And you're better looking too. That's what he said. Now some of that is gloss, by the way, but uh, that will do for now. First Thessalonians chapter 5 is partially true. First Thessalonians chapter 5. We've got a long way to go, 28 verses or so. I know Mark was taking the moral high ground, but remember he had less verses than me in chapter 4 and still took just as long, if not longer. So I've got 28 verses in my promise to be sober has failed, hasn't it? over the past few minutes but there we go I've got a lot of time or a lot of verses to cover 28 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 I don't care about the time I have a message that's on my heart and you will get that message if you want to leave feel free feel free but we're not really that bothered about the time I hope now 1 Thessalonians 5 here we go but of the times and the seasons brethren you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, you can't help, just ignore really the chapter division. You know that this is a, a prophetic panel. And that prophetic panel is, is ongoing, that section. But you will notice that there are some huge contrasts between the two verses or two sets of verses so we've been dealing with the rapture yes and Paul says I don't want you to be ignorant about this and then you move into the start of chapter 5 and he's dealing now not so much with the rapture he's dealing with the day of the Lord and he says well you know these things you know them perfectly so there are some clear contrasts between these sections though they are both prophetic you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Now Paul isn't speaking about saints, believers, because they will be raptured away before this day comes. But it will come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape but ye, brethren, can you see the difference? Destruction comes on them, 
they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, ye are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now he's not saying the day of the Lord will overtake them, it just won't overtake them as a thief. He's saying that day will not overtake you at all, whatsoever. Thank God for that. Ye are all the children of light, and you are the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. And what characterizes that day of the Lord is moral darkness, moral night. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and let us be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken, drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope. You've noticed the triad again, haven't you? The hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. And you know now what that word wrath means, especially in the context of the Thessalonian epistle. God has not appointed us to wrath, but rather to obtain salvation. So there's an aspect of salvation that is yet ours to obtain. Scripture speaks about salvation in three different tenses, doesn't it? We've been saved in the past from the penalty of our sins. We are being saved in the present from the power of sin. But we shall be saved in the future from the very presence of sin. So we're going to obtain salvation. Salvation from this coming wrath, from the very presence of sin, and that through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Now that's the basis of it all, isn't it? That he died for us. That whether we wake, or whether we sleep, probably whether we, we watch, or whether we are morally asleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and that's linking the two sections once again, isn't it? Comfort one another with these words, and again, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Now, I was being a bit facetious. I won't be that long tonight at all. But that section, that first section, verses 1 to 11, we're just going to write over that, be sober, be sober. Now, verse 12 down to verse 18 be spiritual be spiritual and these are characteristics that belong to a spiritual Christian so be sober is the injunction of 1 to 11 and now we have the thought of being spiritual and we beseech you brethren to know them which labour among you we are moving to a certain extent into an ecclesiastical section he's certainly going to deal with truth that has to do with local church gathering he says, know them which labour among you and are over you, stand before you in the Lord. So he's thinking about shepherds, elders, overseers in a local assembly, and they admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, and I don't think this is just an exhortation to the shepherds, they certainly will be at the forefront of this injunction and doing especially this work. But this really is going out to all the saints. We exhort you, brothers and sisters, you can read, 
Warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient towards all men, including Mark Sweetnam. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Be spiritual. The characteristics of a spiritual Christian. Now finally, well not quite, but 19 to 22, I'm going to call this be scriptural. I think that these verses hang together. They are not separate injunctions. They flow one from another. And he's certainly here thinking about the assembly. He's thinking collectively. Be scriptural. He says, verse 19, quench not the spirit. How can we quench not the spirit? By not despising prophecy, prophesyings. Remember, this is a very early epistle. The New Testament canon hasn't been completed. There were New Testament prophets. They would stand in assembly gatherings and they would speak directly from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And it seems as if messages that were coming directly from the Spirit of God were, to a certain extent, at Thessalonica, being despised or derided. And Paul says that will quench the Spirit. Now, you can understand their concern. I'll say this now so I don't need to say it later. You understand their concern when you read Second Thessalonians 2. Because they were led astray by a letter. As if. It came from the Apostle Paul. It didn't. But they were led astray by that. So they were obviously nervous about certain men standing in the gathering and saying, this is what the Lord has said, I have a message from the Lord, New Testament prophets. And instead of testing what they said, they were seeking just to quieten them. And Paul says you're quenching the Spirit of God. We can still quench the Spirit of God in our gatherings today. Now we need to talk about that. So he says, don't despise these prophesyings, but rather prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. So prove what you're being taught, what you're being told, and abstain from all appearance of evil. If there's any suggestion in this prophecy, maybe a false prophet, if there's any suggestion of any kind of evil, then you abstain from that. But measure it by the word of God. So 19 to 22, be scriptural collectively. And then finally, we're going back to a familiar, a familiar uh, subject that we considered in chapter 4, 23 down to the end, be sanctified. He says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Right, we've read the entirety of the chapter, and God will bless the reading of his word to us. So because we have a large number of verses to get through, 
I'm just going to make a couple of comments. Well, maybe more than a couple, but I'm going to make some comments under those headings that I've already given you. Remember that the great thrust of where we are, and I know there's a prophetic section at the start of the chapter, but the great thrust of where we are really is this, to live. To live in the light of the coming, the soon coming of the Lord Jesus. And these then are the great injunctions, if we summarise chapter 5, these are the great injunctions to you and to me. How can we live in the light of the soon coming and soon return of the Lord Jesus? Well, we can be sober and we can be spiritual and we can be scriptural and we must be sanctified. So I'll say a few things. I can't say anything really about in detail about all of the statements here. Again, as Marcus said, if you have questions, and we're thankful for those who are interested in the word of God and have made lovely comments to us, we do appreciate that, and all the fellowship of the saints here, your kindness in hospitality and and all of that, anything that you want to qualify later on, then please do that. Now, first of all, let's think about verses 1 to 11, this great injunction to be sober. You cannot fail, can you? To miss the contrasts. Now those of you with any interest at all in prophetic teaching. Pin back your ears. Paul is no longer dealing with the rapture. He is dealing now with the day of the Lord. These are different things. You understand that we have been talking almost... We have been talking in terms that separate the second coming of Christ. But you can't do that. One coming. One second coming. Christ has already been here. He was here 2,000 years ago. That was one coming in incarnation. But there were two aspects to it. You remember, it's remarkable, isn't it? You remember that when Christ came the first time, You remember that 30 years of his life were silent, hidden. We know so little about it. And yet there came a point when he was manifested in a sense to the whole nation. And he stood in the river Jordan. And God said from heaven, my beloved son... And he embarked upon a very public ministry and manifestation. Now, that wasn't two comings. That was one coming. But two aspects to that coming. A very quiet, private aspect. And then secondly, a much more public and manifested aspect. It's exactly the same with the second coming of Christ. It's not two comings. We're not saying he's coming to the air and then he's coming to the earth and these are two separate comings. So there's the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the third coming of Christ. Not at all. It's one coming. But there are two aspects to that coming. In relation to the rapture, very noisy verses, weren't they? At the end of 1 Thessalonians 4. But in a sense it's quiet, it's private, it's limited to those who are in Christ. And are going to be caught away to meet him in the air. But I tell you this, after the tribulation period, there's that second aspect of his second coming. Christ will be manifested in glory. Every eye shall see him. He's coming with ten thousands of his saints. 
and he's coming back to the earth. So one coming. And we're dealing with those aspects. We thought of the rapture, the end of chapter 4. Beginning of chapter 5, we're thinking about the day of the Lord. Now, I want you to see the differences. Chapter 4, verse 13. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. But chapter 5, verse 2, you know perfectly. What a contrast. In relation to the rapture, the end of chapter 4, here is a people that are destined for blessing. But when Paul speaks about the day of the Lord in chapter 5, he says sudden destruction. They will not escape those who are on earth. He says this people group that I'm thinking of now, they're going to be subject, well not destined for blessing, subject to judgment. When you're in the rapture, the end of chapter 4, here is a people that are being removed from the earth. But at the beginning of chapter 5, here is a people that are remaining on the earth. In relation to the rapture, the end of chapter 4, it's a welcome event. Our hearts and our souls have been stirred as we thought of the coming of Christ. Comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5 is different. There's a thief. That's not welcome. He's unwelcome. He's unheralded. That's not a comfort. It's an unwelcome event. The rapture leads to unending joy in the presence of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, inescapable travail. They shall not escape. So what is Paul doing? Well, he's not talking about the rapture. He's speaking about the day of the Lord. This is God's plan and God's purpose for events on earth. Now, I don't want to go into the technicalities at this point, but look at verse 1. Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. That word time describes time quantitatively. The word seasons describes time qualitatively. The times and the seasons comes from the book of Daniel. The Lord Jesus discussed times and seasons with his disciples in Acts chapter 1. These are phrases that have to do with God's purpose and plan for the nation of Israel and indeed the wider nations on earth. So as soon as he begins to use that language, you know that he's moving away from God's dealings with the church. The church has been raptured. The church has gone to heaven. But he says of the times and the seasons, God's dealings, planning, purposes for Israel, for the nations on earth. You know all about this. I've taught you about this. And that helps us to understand the contrast and the difference between the language at the end of chapter 4 and the language at the beginning of chapter 5. So why does he speak then about the day of the Lord? If you have any interest in prophetic scripture, get to grips with these days. You know them. We're not speaking about a 24-hour period here. We're talking about a period of time. We are presently living in man's day. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3. 
It is a day where the glorification and exaltation of mankind is at the forefront. And mankind is pushing himself to be deified. This is man's day. You know that scripture speaks ultimately of the day of God. 2 Peter chapter 3 speaks of the day of God. That really is the period of eternity. It's the eternal state. It's after the millennial reign. It is a day when God will be glorified. God will be exalted. God will be all in all. What a day that will be. But, though we're in a day of grace, and though this is man's day, The day of the Lord is coming. Now you know there are two separate days that run concurrently really with one another. One emphasises events in heaven. One emphasises events on earth. Once the church has been raptured, then the day of the Lord will begin. The day of the Lord has to do with events on earth. This is a day, in fact it's a long period, that takes in the tribulation that very much emphasises the return and manifestation of Christ to the earth. Very often when you read of the day of the Lord, it has that specific aspect in view. The return of deity, the return of Christ. But the day of the Lord after the rapture begins at some point after the day of the rapture. Maybe Revelation 6, maybe the unfurling of the seals, maybe the coming forth of the white horse. But the day of the Lord begins... It's taking in the tribulation. It's taking in the manifestation of Christ. It even takes in the millennial reign of Christ. A thousand years. But this is God's dealing with Israel and the nations on earth. And the day of the Lord. Because it will be a period, an extended period. Where the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified and exalted here on earth. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And the tribulation is all part of God's dealings with the nations. Breaking down, moving, shaking, destroying everything that stands in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. Until ultimately he comes to establish it. It is the day of the Lord. You see what Paul has in view here. Peace and safety, sudden destruction, travail. Well, he's not thinking about the manifestation just yet. And he's not thinking about the millennial reign. Because that certainly won't be destruction and travail. He's thinking about the point leading up to the manifestation of Christ. This must be the tribulation period. Now, having said that, Mark has already mentioned the day of Christ. Once it is that we are raptured to the glory of heaven, the Father's house, then we'll unfold in heaven... For the church age saints, the day of Christ. That takes in the judgment seat. That takes in the marriage of the Lamb. A day in heaven when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour, will be glorified and exalted alongside his saints. So he'll be glorified in heaven, glorified on earth. The day of the Lord, the day of Christ. Right, let's think about some of these verses and we'll just summarise 1 to 11 now. Be sober. You'll notice Paul says in verse 3, when they shall say. You remember that he is speaking. He's not when you shall say. They won't be here. 
He's talking about earth dwellers. Earth is their home. Earth is their perspective. They've never understood or believed divine truth. Lifted their eyes heavenward. When they shall say, this is how the period of the day of the Lord will commence. They will say peace and safety. But then, says Paul, sudden destruction. And they will not escape. This peace and safety will characterize the opening period of the day of the Lord. You remember Revelation chapter 6. And as the Lamb takes that seven sealed book and he opens the first seal, there's a white horse. And one who sat upon that horse, please don't think he's Christ. He's certainly not Christ. He's the polar opposite to Revelation 19. There the King of Kings is sat upon a white horse. He is a man who is going to present a false peace. A very fragile peace. He's the very man that is going to sign a covenant with the nation of Israel. To grant them peace and safety in the land at the beginning of the tribulation. So that this period of God's dealing with men on earth actually begins with a period of peace and safety. But then, sudden destruction. This is how those on earth will begin to realize that God is dealing with them in judgment. Sudden destruction will come. In the experience of earthlings, the day of the Lord will arrive as a thief, unexpected, unheralded. We were not looking for him. As a thief in the night, because that's the moral character of the day. The tribulation will be full of iniquity like never before. The residence of the Spirit of God has been removed. And the floodgates of iniquity will come upon this earth, characterized, personalized in a man called the man of sin. What an awful day it will be for those who are left behind. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the urgency of the gospel. Don't forget that. You've been reminded of that across these two days. My brother, my sister, personally, take every opportunity to communicate the glories of Christ. Tell others about Christ. Collectively, take every opportunity to have concentrated forms of gospel preaching and gospel outreach is desperate for what is coming. And it may come very soon. You say, this, this doesn't sound very encouraging. Well, it's not very encouraging if you're here on earth. But just wait. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, brethren, that day is characterized by moral darkness. But listen to this. You're not in darkness. That's not your character at all. In actual fact, you are not in darkness. Therefore, that day will not overtake you as a thief. That day will not grasp you. 
He's not saying the day will grasp you, it just, it won't be as a thief. What he's saying is the day will not touch you, grasp you, overtake you at all. Why not? We are, verse 5, we're sons of the light. The word children is sons, character, dignity. We belong to the light. We are sons of the day. We are not of the light, nor are we of the darkness. How can a day and a period of darkness overtake those who belong to the light? What wonderful teaching. As sons of light, and those who belong to the day, the night and the darkness of the day of the Lord can never, can never overtake us. Now is the point at which you say, thank God. You can say it in your heart, in your mind. But just offer up a prayer of praise for God's grace towards us. Now here's the challenge practical challenge. Verse 6 Therefore why are we sleeping? We don't, now you know we're not talking about physical sleep here, right? Why are you sleeping? This is metaphorical. We should not be sleeping as others sleep because we belong to the day. Because we're children of the light. So let's watch and let's be sober. So says Paul, therefore, I want you to live consistently with what you are. Because you belong to the day, because you are sons of the light, live like those who are in the day. You should not be sleeping. Christians, we should not be lethargic. We should not be lazy. We should not be living inattentive spiritual lives. We should be awake. He says so, watch. He says be sober. Be awake spiritually. Be energetic. Be busy. As far as your work in the things of the Lord is concerned. Are you? Are you? You might call this one of my soapboxes. But a lot of you teenagers are throwing away time. You will never get back. You are developing habits now that you'll find hard to shake for the rest of your life. So develop good habits now. Because if you devote your life to gaming when you're 18, you'll find it extremely hard. Now we're just facing this, right? Because gaming wasn't really a thing. And I'm pretty young, actually. Gaming wasn't really a thing when I was a teenager, really. We're just finding the impact that that's having on men in the assemblies that are in their 30s today. 
If you give yourself to gaming now and waste all that time, you won't be able to shake it. You will not be able to contribute properly and effectively to a local assembly witness. You will not be able to worship as you might on a Lord's Day morning. In fact, much of what you could have done for Christ will be lost because you're lazy, because you are sleeping. Wake up. I wish I had a solid platform. I'd be like Ken Rudge then. Bang, bang. Wake up. That's what Paul say. You belong to the day. How dare you fall asleep? How dare you be so lazy? Now is the time. Now is the occasion to be busy in the things of the Lord. You young folks, if you're in assembly fellowship, thank God. Get busy in the assembly. Devote yourself to the activities of the assembly. If there's a tracting group, be first there. And devote yourself to the book. Will you? Get to grips with the word of God. He says, watch Be awake. And what about this word sober? Not just watch. He says be sober. Self-control morally. That's running all the way through. You belong to the day. I know there's a sense in which there is already a night upon us. This world is filthy. But he says you belong to the day. You belong to the light. So be awake spiritually. Be self-controlled morally. And stand apart from all the filth of this world. How can I do it? Well, verse 8 gives you the answer. Here is the armour that God has provided for us. Let us who are of the day be sober. How can we be sober? By putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What an armour it is. You put on the breastplate of faith, depend upon God in your Christian life. Put on the breastplate of love, be devoted to God all the way through your life. And thank God then for the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Trust God's plan. Put your faith in him. He will deliver you ultimately away from that wrath. Depend on God, faith. Be devoted to God, love. Look forward to the deliverance of God. You have a hope that will enable us to watch. That will enable us to be sober. We must just mention this, look at verse 9. For God has, could it be much clearer? God has not appointed us to wrath. He has destined us not for tribulation wrath. He has destined us to obtain salvation. Our deliverer away from that wrath to come. The rapture is the way that we will obtain salvation from that wrath. It couldn't be much clearer. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 hasn't been mentioned yet. What a promise to a faithful church in Philadelphia. Says the Lord Jesus, because you've been faithful to me, he says, I will keep you. From the hour of temptation, which is coming upon all the earth 
to try those that dwell on the earth. We're going to be delivered before the tribulation comes. A seven year period, an hour is comparatively short, isn't it? A seven year period of awful tribulation. You say, but that was just for Asia Minor. That was just for Philip. No, no, no. It's going to come upon all the earth. It's universal. That's this day of the Lord. He says, but I will keep you. Out of that hour. You're not going to see a second, a minute. Here it is being re-emphasized. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You say, hang on. Some Christians aren't living as they should be. Some Christians are doing too much gaming. They're asleep. Some Christians, they fall into sin. They're not morally self-control. You say, they'll be left behind. Just to, God will judge them in the day of the Lord. They'll be left behind right when the rapture takes. Don't you believe it? The Bible does not teach a partial rapture. If you're saved by the grace of God, you're going. And you are going whether you are awake or whether you are asleep. This verse puts the lie to a partial rapture. He says in verse 10, Christ died for us. That whether we are awake or asleep, we are going to live together in company with Christ. Whether you're living the kind of Christian life that you should be or not, the fact of the matter is this, when the rapture occurs, you will be going. Because it doesn't depend on how you're living your Christian life. It depends upon the fact that Christ died for me. And he died for you. That's my security. For a day of bliss that lies ahead. We've said enough. 1 to 11. Be sober. Now we'll move very quickly. 12 to 18. It's what I call be spiritual. Or at least I label these verses be spiritual. It seems as if, and remember we're back into the practical teaching now, the effect that this should have upon us. It seems as if Paul is describing the characteristics of those who are awake. The characteristics of those who are spiritual Christians. Notice please that there are relationships all the way down through these verses. So verses 12 to 13, the relationships that we have with our shepherds. We're thinking about elders in the local assembly. They are over you in the Lord. Verse 14, the relationships that we have with other saints. Verse 15, the relationship that we have with society. All men. Verses 16, 17, 18, the relationship that we have with God. And in a sense, towards ourselves. We should always be rejoicing, praying without ceasing, in everything giving thanks. The characteristics of a spiritual Christian. I want to say this, because they get a really tough press. Can I talk to you about your elders? Look for a moment at verses 12 and 13. Here are brethren that are over you. 
in the Lord. That doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that they are dictators to you, although sometimes they will need to dictate. The idea is that they stand before you in the Lord. They set an outstanding spiritual example. These are those that Paul describes as elders, shepherds. He says, they labour among you. They expend their lives for you. They labour in your local assembly. They labour in your very midst. At times they have to warn you and admonish you. But they are standing as your spiritual protectors and guardians. What does he say in verse 13? Criticise them behind their backs as much as you can. Or rather, he says, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Could you please just hold them in the highest possible regard for the work that they do? They demand respect. If you haven't done it before, and I'm sure you appreciate it, And they're not necessarily looking for it. It would be good for you to have a word with some of your shepherds and say, brother so-and-so, we appreciate. We're not always the easiest flock. I'm not always a happy, obedient, fluffy sheep. But I appreciate the work you do for us and for me. Thankless is the work. Well rewarded will be the work. But sometimes, dear saints, you need to be a little more thankful. So he talks about shepherds. He talks about saints. Look at verse 14, relationships with saints. Now, shepherds, of course, will take the lead in this. But he says in verse 14... Some saints are undisciplined, so you need to warn them. Some saints are a little feeble, so you need to comfort them. Some saints are spiritually weak, so you need to hold them. Some saints try your patience, but be long-suffering with them. And try not when they're being silly. Sheep can be silly. Try not to be irritable. Be characterized by long suffering. That's not just shepherds. That's all of us. And that's the way in which we should be dealing with one another. What about verse 15? My relationship to society. See that you do not render evil for evil unto any man, but follow that which is good, not just amongst yourselves, but to all men. You're going to be wronged in this life. You are going to be wronged and persecuted. Think of these Thessalonians and all that they were facing and suffering. He says you're going to be wronged, not just by the saints, hopefully not by the saints. You're going to be wronged by those who are without. Don't retaliate. Don't render evil for evil. He says rather return kindness and good for evil. Oh, that's easy to say, isn't it? Tough to live out. And what about our relationship with ourselves or even with God himself? 
Notice please verse 18. This is will of God. That little phrase covers all of the injunctions in 16, 17, 18. So we know now a lot about the will of God, don't we? We know that sanctification is God's desire, God's will for me. But this is also God's desire for me. That I will always rejoice. That I will continually pray. And that in everything I will give thanks. Those are continuing duties for the believer. It is God's desire for me is a vital part of God's will. Could I take two of them? Be prayerful. Pray without ceasing. Pray without gaps. That word without ceasing was used in the the common literature of the day to describe an incessant cough. There's quite a few of you that have got an incessant cough. He's saying pray incessantly. Like that cough that you can't shake. And if you've got one, and next time you cough, this is where I pause and just wait. And people are holding it in as much as they can. When you cough incessantly, that's what Paul is saying about prayer. Keep on praying. Incessant prayer. You say it's impossible to pray always. Well, of course it's impossible. But Paul is not saying you should be praying every moment of every day. Nothing would get done, in a sense. He's saying you should be living your life in a characteristic attitude of continual prayer. And whenever the occasion arrives, whenever the occasion affords itself, pray, pray. And in everything, in every circumstance, even the most difficult ones, he says, give thanks. We've been reminded of this already, but unthankfulness is characteristic of the heathen. And that awful, awful catalogue of sins in Romans chapter 1 begins. They were not thankful towards God. That's where it begins. I hope you're thankful for your food. I hope you're thankful for your elders. I hope you're thankful for your family. I hope you're thankful for your salvation and their basic As Christians, we should always be thankful in every circumstance, as tough as they are. It's characteristic of a spiritual Christian. So 12 to 18, be spiritual. Now look at 19 to 22, we're almost there. 19 to 22, I called this, be collectively scriptural. He says, quench not the spirit. I wonder if almost, he's been speaking about the characteristics of a spiritual Christian The characteristics of a believer who's awake. It's almost now as if he's speaking about the character of a church. A local church that is awake and alive. He says the spirit of God is among you. You must not quench him. So the spirit of God now is being presented under the figure of a flame. He's powerful isn't he? He's holy. He's powerful. That's fire. He's being presented under the figure of a flame. But it's possible to quench him. He's a person. It is possible to extinguish him. To stifle him in this sense. That we can stifle his activity amongst us. Or that's a serious thing. 
Because when the gospel came to these Thessalonians, it wasn't just the words of men. It was the word of God. And the fact that it had any impact at all was because the word of God was communicated in the power of the Spirit of God. Otherwise nothing would have been accomplished. You need the Spirit. His activity and a sense of his presence can be stifled. It can be extinguished. He says you must not quench the Spirit. How might we do that? Well, we might do it by despising prophecy. I've already said, those who know New Testament prophets today, they were part of the foundation. We're well into the 20th, 21st story, whatever it might be. The prophets have been long left behind, but thank God they've left their record. Here it is. We have a record of much of the New Testament prophecy. And it seems that in these early days of the Thessalonian church, men were standing up purporting to have a message from the Lord, and because they were concerned and worried about whether it was genuine or it would lead them astray, they said, sit down. They despised that prophecy. They had a low appreciation of it, a suspicion of it. They didn't want to hear it, and in so doing, stifling the activity of the Spirit of God. Can you update it? I think so. Brethren, if you don't want to listen to the Word of God, you will stifle the activity of the Spirit of God amongst us. If we do not have local churches that have at their very centre the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, then the presence of the Spirit of God will not be experienced as it should. Restricting spiritual gift. The Spirit of God has given spiritual gift to every believer. My brother, if you're not exercising that gift in the context of the assembly, are you stifling the manifestation of His presence? You could contribute to the gathering, but you've never opened your mouth. You could help in the exercises of the, act, of the assembly. You've never laid a hand to the plough. Through these things we can stifle the activity of the Spirit. So you say, what's the answer? Well, just sit there for, well, sit there for a few decades until the word of God is complete. Then you'll be alright, you Thessalonian believers. Is that what he says? This is what he says. He says, prove all things. And hold fast that which is good. So this is what you do. You listen to the prophecy. And you test the prophecy. By what has already been revealed. And what proves to be good. Hold it fast. What passes the test as genuine. Embrace it. Wholeheartedly. And possess it. They knew something of the word of God. Working in them. And through them effectually. Didn't they? Hold it tight. But what if it doesn't measure up to the standard? Well, verse 22, abstain from every appearance of evil. Every form of injurious doctrinal evil, that which fails the test, abstain. Keep free and keep clear. 
well, shepherds will have a real responsibility. Even still today, there are not false prophets, but there are false teachers. We have a responsibility to preserve the flock. Now finally, 23 to 28, but really I'm only going to say something about verse 23. 23 to 28, you remember the last injunction, we've heard it all. This is where we began. Be sanctified. So we're back to it. Paul spends more time speaking about sanctification than he does about the rapture. You thought of that? You say, all of those difficult things that you had to say, I did. About immorality. Fornication. I feel my weakness. I know the society in which I live. And I'm not blaming it, but I know it. How can I possibly, in the light of the coming of Christ, this is the first injunction, is the last injunction. How can I possibly lead a morally pure life? Well, Paul has already given you tools at the start of chapter 4. But thank God for this. He says, I'll pray for you. He says, God has a hand in this. He says, the very God of peace. May he sanctify you wholly. We're going to need his help. The God of peace will sanctify us. This is not positional, that's done. This is practical. Says Paul, I'm praying that God will set you apart wholly, completely to himself. So that body, soul, spirit... So that holiness might pervade your entire being. It's God himself that will preserve you on the path of sanctification. So we have a responsibility. Of course we do. But thank God he too. Pray for the saints, won't you? We don't often hear prayers like this in the prayer meeting. Why not? It's always about brother or sister so-and-so and they've had an incessant cough and it's really frustrating me in this prayer meeting. Lord, we pray that they might feel a lot better very soon. And we pray for all the arrangements of the conference and that's a good thing. And we pray for the preaching of the gospel. Boy, it was preached in power and all of this is good. What about praying like this? That would be a good thing. Praying for the spiritual sanctification and preservation because brethren, We'll do our best. And we have the Son of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God. But there's a sense in which we need God himself to preserve us until the day is done. So, we're living in the light of the coming of Christ. Be sober. Be spiritual. Be scriptural. And be sanctified. And God will add a blessing to his word. Let's just pray. Father, we stand at the, the close of the two days that we've spent together. And we thank thee, our Father, for the great joy of spending time with thy people, of being in fellowship with one another, of assemblies that are like-minded, joining together in fellowship like this. But we thank thee above all for the opening of thy word. We bless thee, our God, for the teaching of Scripture. We thank thee for this beautiful 
short, punchy, encouraging epistle that we have from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Father, we thank thee for all that it has taught us. We thank thee that it has challenged us in relation to the way that we communicate the gospel, the urgency of the gospel, the way that we react and interact with one another. We thought of sanctification and love. We thought of the soon coming, the soon return of the Lord Jesus. We bless thee for thy grace, our deliverer. So Father, we pray that some of these things might lodge themselves in our hearts and in our minds and affect us for good, that we might hear these words, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And Father, that this word in obedience might work in us effectively. We pray that there might be change in our lives as a result of this conference time. So we commit all this to thee. We thank you for thy people. Watch over them as they part. Bless their fellowship, their conversation together, we pray. All the assemblies that are represented. Father, increase and bless testimony. In this region, we pray. We ask these things in the Saviour's name. Amen.